Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This episode is the last in my three-part series on Elizabeth Woodville. It's been a lot of fun to write about for the last month or so, and while I know some of you care little for order, I would strongly recommend that you go back and listen to the previous two shows before diving into this one. Remember, if you have any comments on anything covered in the show, or a question that you'd like me to answer, then be sure to get in touch, and I'll be sure to do my best to answer it. And if you ask a really good one, it might even make it onto the podcast. My email address is queensofenglandpodcast at gmail.com. There's the Facebook page, Queens of England Podcast, where I post the episodes and any other podcast-related news. There's my rather neglected, but still there, Twitter page, at Queens Podcast, and of course my website, queensofenglandpodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England Podcast. Episode 32, Elizabeth Woodville, Queen Mother, Twice Over. Edward IV died relatively young, aged 42, on the 9th of April, 1483. Traditionally, the cause of death is said to have been overindulgence. Too much wine, too much food, too much sex. This seems a rather moralistic view, especially given the more austere lives of by his two successors, but it's the best explanation we have. He lay in state at St Stephen's Chapel in the Palace of Westminster, before a funeral took place at Westminster Abbey a week later, before being taken to Windsor, where he was buried. We have a few accounts of the funeral itself, but I shall not read them to you for the simple fact that Elizabeth is barely mentioned. She would have been there, but protocol allowed for a very limited role for the grieving widow. Given that Edward had little time to get his affairs in order before he died, he put in place a plan for the succession. Unfortunately, his will does not survive, but we do know that he naturally named his son as his successor, and his brother, Richard Duke of Gloucester, as Lord Protector. This follows the model for the arrangements made by Henry V, where he named his infant son as his successor, and named his brother, coincidentally also Duke of Gloucester, as Lord Protector. What is unclear is what Edward IV intended his wife's role to be. He did not place her in a position of formal political power, but it is unthinkable that he would have sidelined her completely. Her mere position as Dowager Queen Mother allowed her significant power, as did her family connections. All those Woodvilles were still stationed in key positions in the royal government, and held important titles and a ton of land. There was also no special role set out for Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers, the new king's eldest uncle, but again, it would have been expected that he would play a role in the affairs of the kingdom going forward. And there was no reason for King Edward to suspect that his wishes should not be honoured. 
Since the Norman Conquests, three kings have come to the throne as minors, Henry III, Richard II, and Henry VI. None of them were the subject of any serious challenge. That is pretty remarkable, especially since all three were younger than Edward V were when his father died. A number of kings have been overthrown in that period, but all have been so because of their own ineffectual rule when they were adults. Indeed, nobles loved periods of minority because it usually meant that power was far more devolved. Then again, of course, even after over a decade of undisputed-ish rule on the throne, Edward IV knew that the scars of the Wars of the Roses were far from healed, which is why he placed the protectorship in the hands of the one man that he trusted above any other. Richard of Gloucester had been Edward's right-hand man right from the start. Unswervingly loyal, he was a marked contrast with Clarence, whose jealousy led him to betray Edward twice before finding himself drowned in a barrel of wine. What I'm trying to say is that Edward pretty much did everything right in securing the succession, but it would not do him any good. To start off with, we need to examine where everyone was when the king died. Richard was in York after having semi-retired up there after the fall of Clarence. Elizabeth was in Westminster, being the grieving widow. The new King Edward was with Uncle Rivers at Ludlow in Shropshire near the Welsh border. Basically, nowhere near each other. Everyone knew that possession of the king was vital. Who controlled him controlled England's destiny. He was currently in the clutches of the Woodvilles, the people who had raised him, but their enemies, such as Hastings, saw that if he could be prized away from his mother and their family, then they could raise him anew. But first, they had to have his person. Elizabeth was no fool and knew this better than anyone, and immediately requested the Regency Council to allow a large force to be mustered to bring Edward to London to be crowned. Hastings, at this point, threw a fit. He had no intention of allowing this, suspecting a Woodvillian coup led by this force, and demanded that the number of troops sent to escort the king be limited. He had a number of allies here. Remember that the Woodvilles were the nouveau riche parvenus of the kingdom. They were blamed, perhaps with some justice, for the downfall of the Duke of Clarence. They were seen as having corrupted the heart of the noble King Edward IV. Hastings' allies now had a chance, a brief window, to prevent a second king coming under their sway but they needed the Lord Protector to make his mark, to seize the initiative and be their champion. Here are the events as depicted in the Crowland Chronicle. Quote, the more far-sighted members of the council thought that the uncles and brothers of the king on the mother's side should be absolutely forbidden to have control of the person of the young man until he came of age. Lord Hastings was afraid that if supreme power fell into the hands of the queen's relatives, they would then sharply avenge the alleged injuries done to them by that lord. Much ill will, indeed, had long existed between Lord Hastings and them. However, the benevolent Queen, wishing to extinguish every spark of murmuring and unrest, wrote to her son that he should not have more than 2,000 men when he came to London. This number was also pleasing to Hastings, for he was confident enough, so it seemed, that the Dukes of Gloucester and Buckingham, in whom he had the greatest trust, would bring with them no lesser number. Gloucester wrote the most pleasant letters to console the Queen, he promised to come and offer submission, fealty, and all that was due from him to his lord and king, Edward V. So, we have two armies on the march. One force led by Earl Rivers from the Welsh border to London, the other led by the Duke of Gloucester and his long-term ally Buckingham, marching south to intercept it. The Woodvilles met Gloucester and Buckingham at Stony Stratford, and received assurances that everything was cool. Just cool. And then, in a decidedly uncool move... 
Richard had all the Woodvilles arrested, placing the king under his control. Though the Crowland Chronicle does state that he, quote, did not put off or refuse to offer to his nephew the king any of the reverence required from a subject. Whether this was the first move in some plot to take the throne, or just a preemptive strike to secure his own position as Lord Protector, is not my place to discuss, might I suggest any of the gajillions of books on the subject. But the simple fact is that, right now, the king was out of Woodville hands and was instead in Gloucester's. One person who recognised the seriousness of the situation immediately was Elizabeth. Dominic Mancini's account of these extraordinary events is less circumspect than the Crowland Chronicle. Here is his take on the situation. Quote, The Duke of Gloucester allied himself with the Duke of Buckingham, complaining to the latter of the insult done to him by the ignoble family of the Queen. Buckingham, since he was of the highest nobility, was disposed to sympathise with another noble, more especially because he had his own reasons for detesting the Queen's kin, for, when he was younger, he had been forced to marry the Queen's sister, whom he scorned to wed on account of her humble origin. After describing Buckingham and Gloucester's arrest of the Woodvilles and capture of the King, saying that they, quote, cajoled him by moderation, yet they clearly show that they were demanding rather than supplicating, he describes Elizabeth's reaction, quote, the Queen and the Marquess of Dorset, that would be the eldest son by her first marriage, Thomas Grey, perceived that men's minds were not only irresolute but altogether hostile to themselves. Some even said openly that it was more just and profitable that the youthful sovereign should be with his paternal uncle than with his maternal uncles. Comprehending this, the Queen and Marquess withdrew to Westminster Abbey with the Duke of York, her second son, Edward IV, and the Queen's already grown-up daughters. Round one to Richard. Now, I will not be passing judgment on Richard in this episode, though, for the record, I voted for Fool in David Crowther's referendum on Richard III on the History of England podcast, but I do think at this point that he wasn't engaged in deep, long-term Machiavellian stratagems to win the throne. For the moment, I believe he was attempting to secure his position as Lord Protector and attempting to sideline the Woodvilles. Elizabeth initially feared the worst. Remember what happened to her father and brother after Warwick's attempted coup? and she was not wrong to worry. When Richard entered London, he did so with wagons laden with what they claimed were Woodvillian weapons, painting themselves as the king's saviour, safeguarding Edward IV's will. Richard petitioned Parliament to have Rivers and his supporters executed, but the council rejected it. Richard, though, was able to get his position as Lord Protector confirmed, and to have the coronation delayed until June. He worked hard at bending the court to his side rather than the Woodvilles, but there was one Woodville that he needed to talk around. Elizabeth held in the sanctuary of Westminster Abbey an important piece in this game of dynastic chess. The Duke of York, the king's only surviving brother and now presumptive heir to the throne. Now, whether he wanted to get York out of his mother's hands so they could have him killed with his brother, whether this was just about presenting the new protectorship of the realm with a veneer of unity, is again not for this podcast to say. But this was a very difficult decision for Elizabeth. She was under the protection of the Abbey, but it was not unthinkable that Richard would storm it and take her son by force. Many times after battles in the Wars of the Roses, both sides have violated sanctuaries to take opposing lords and execute them. If Richard was to be forced to do this, he would be taking such a large step that he would essentially be going all in, and that would make him even more dangerous. Elizabeth also had to think about the safety of her daughters, who were also with her, not to mention herself. She was the best advocate for her children. Were something to happen to her, then their greatest line of defence would be swept away. 
The Abbey was surrounded by soldiers loyal to Richard, and supporters of the Woodvilles were finding it hard to keep their heads attached to their necks. Most famously, Lord Hastings, who until very recently was a firm supporter of Richard's, became a victim of his reign of terror. This is from the Crowland Chronicle. Quote, a great cause of growing anxiety was the detention in prison of the king's relatives and servants, and the fact that the protector did not show sufficient consideration for the dignity and peace of mind of the queen. Lord Hastings, who seemed to serve these dukes in every way and to have deserved favour of them, bursting with joy over this new world, was asserting that nothing so far had been done except to transfer the government of the kingdom from two blood relatives of the queen to two nobles of the blood royal. The Chronicle then goes on to explain that Richard divided the council into people he trusted and those he did not. Those he did not were instructed to go to the Tower, where Hastings was beheaded and the Archbishop of York and Bishop of Ely were only saved because they were men of the cloth. The Chronicle then says that Richard and Buckingham, quote, came by boat to Westminster with a great crowd, with swords and clubs, and compelled the Lord Cardinal of Canterbury to enter the sanctuary with many others, to call upon the Queen in her kindness to allow her son Richard, Duke of York, to leave and come to the Tower for the comfort of the King, his brother. She willingly agreed to the proposal and sent out the boy who was taken by the Lord Cardinal to the King in the Tower of London. This account, then, presents the Queen as being really rather naive in giving up her child so easily. The word willing is very telling there. As you might expect, Dominic Mancini has a rather different take. Quote, with the consent of the council, he surrounded the sanctuary with troops. When the queen saw herself besieged and preparation for violence, she surrendered her son, trusting in the word of the Cardinal of Canterbury that the boy should be restored after the coronation. So here, Elizabeth is presented as giving up her son under duress after being promised by the Cardinal Archbishop of Canterbury that he would come to no harm and would be returned to her. Most accounts present a version of what Mancini says, that the Archbishop persuaded the Queen that the boy would come to no harm, that he personally would ensure that the Duke of York would be safe. So Elizabeth was forced to stay at Westminster Abbey and could only watch helplessly as her whole world came crashing down around her. First, her family started to be picked off. The Woodvilles that had accompanied her from Shropshire to London before being intercepted were now finally executed. They included Elizabeth's brother Earl Rivers and her son Richard Grey. She could do nothing. Second, rumours, possibly though not definitely spread by Richard and Buckingham, started to be thrown around that her marriage to Edward was not legitimate. There were a couple of versions of these rumours flying about. One was that Edward IV was a bastard. Remember back in part one of this series when Edward's mother claimed that he was illegitimate, the product of an affair she had had while in France? Well, this was brought up again. The other, more damaging to Elizabeth, rumour, was that Edward had not been free to marry her, that he was already married. <gasps> Cute gasps. The story was that Edward had been promised already to Lady Eleanor Butler. Remember how witchcraft ran in the family because her mother had been accused of witchcraft by Warwick? Well, Elizabeth used evil witchcraft to entice the king and tear him away from his poor, innocent promised wife. And a promised wife was as good as a wife in medieval legal terms. Now again, I am not going to get into all of this, though I don't think it's too controversial to say that Elizabeth almost certainly was not a witch, but it is clear that these rumours persuaded many in the kingdom to believe that Edward should not have been king at all, because he was a bastard. And even if he wasn't a bastard, his children certainly couldn't, because they were the product of bigamy. Whether this was Richard's plan, 
or he was the ultimate opportunist, or if he was truly swayed by the ecclesiastical legal arguments, who knows? Whatever. The facts are that he then went and declared himself king and deposed slash usurped the boy King Edward in June 1483. Again, Elizabeth could do nothing. The following year, in January, he presented to Parliament a famous piece of legislation called the Titulus Regius, or Royal Title, in which he defended his right to take the throne. It uses the arguments that I stated above, though in far more flowery and more flattering terms. I'm not going to quote it all, but I've put in the show notes a version with modernised spelling and annotations. I will, though, quote a few bits that explicitly attack Elizabeth Woodville. It starts by attacking the loose morals of Edward IV and how these morals translated to an immoral England. It then goes on to say, quote, Over this, among other things, more specially, we consider how that the time of the reign of King Edward IV, late deceased, after the ungracious pretense of marriage, as all England has cause to so say, may between the said King Edward and Elizabeth, sometime wife to Sir John Grey, late naming herself and many years heretofore Queen of England, the order of all politic rule was perverted, the laws of God and of God's church, and also the laws of nature and of England, and also the laudable customs and liberties of the same. So here it presents Elizabeth as the wife of a terrible and immoral king, who ungraciously, what a wonderfully British word to use, pulled the wool over England's eyes by pretending to be queen. Later on, it goes on to explain the deception in further detail. Quote, And here we consider how the said feigned marriage between the above-named King Edward and Elizabeth Grey was made of great presumption, without the knowing assent of the lords of the land, and also by sorcery and witchcraft, committed by the said Elizabeth and her mother Jaquetta, Duchess of Bedford, as the common opinion of the people and the public voice, and same as through all this land. And hereafter, if, and as the case shall require, shall be proved sufficiently in time and place convenient. Note how they call her Elizabeth Grey here, not the Queen. Since this document claims that she was never Queen, she is merely referred to as being the widow of a dead man, and a Lancastrian man at that. It harks back to the claim that her mother was also a witch, and, despite offering no evidence, claims that they both used sorcery to place her on the throne. Now that she's painted as a lying evil witch, it can get into the really more nitty-gritty of why their marriage was unlawful. Quote, And here also, we consider how that same fair ma- marriage was made privately and secretly, without addition of bans, in a private chamber, a profane place, and not openly in the face of the church, but contrary thereunto and the laudable custom of the Church of England. And how also, that at the time of contract of the same feigned marriage, and before and a long time after, the said King Edward was and stayed married troth plight to one dame Eleanor Butler, daughter of the old Earl of Shrewsbury, with whom the same King Edward had made a pre-contract of matrimony a long time before he made the same feigned marriage with the said Elizabeth Grey, in manner and from form above said. This bill's interpretation of the law is loose at best, as a royal marriage did not technically need all those things like bans, not to mention the fact that it was thought that Elizabeth and Edward were in fact married in a church, albeit secretly. This rewriting of history, and the relative ease with which Richard managed to do it, speaks to the scale of the Woodville's unpopularity, in particular Elizabeth. 
David Baldwin, in his biography of Elizabeth Woodville, comments on how noteworthy it is that she was not able to muster even the smallest amount of support to her cause, to even deprive Richard of the possession of her youngest son, the Duke of York, let alone his usurpation of the proclaimed king. Now, a lot of their reticence to act would have stemmed from the example of the execution of Hastings and Rivers, but it's still interesting that she seems to have been almost totally on her own here. A lot of this, of course, has a lot to do with gender. Dominic Mancini states that Buckingham once stated to Edward V when he said that he had confidence in his mother, quote, It was not the business of women, but of men to govern kingdom. No matter how well-connected, how far-sighted, and how politically talented Elizabeth was, she was, and would always be, a woman in a man's world. And then, finally, there was Richard's final move, the placing of the usurped king and his younger brother into the Tower of London. From there, they completely disappear from history, beginning the legend of the princes in the tower. The matter of who or what killed them, or even if they both died there at all, is a matter of complete conjecture, which is not this podcast's place to discuss, but it seems clear that by the autumn of 1483, Elizabeth Woodville believed that her son's to be dead. I don't normally like to get too emotive about people in the Middle Ages, as the medieval mindset is so far removed from that of our own that it is impossible to do so without imposing our own value systems. That said, put yourself, very briefly, in Elizabeth's shoes in the autumn of 1483. In the space of a few months, she had gone from being the queen consort of a powerful kingdom with a seemingly secure succession and a family around her to having three sons and her brother killed, as well as many other members of her family and retinue. She had gone from the safety and luxury of a palace to the insecure relative sanctuary of a besieged Westminster Abbey, fully in the knowledge that her enemies could storm in at any moment and take her and her surviving children captive or worse. The reason why we believe that she thought her sons to be dead by the autumn is because of her involvement in Buckingham's rebellion. Duke of Buckingham had been Richard's right-hand man throughout all of this, the Earl of Warwick to Richard Edward IV, and he was unhappy at the rewards given to him after his friend took the throne. He therefore joined a conspiracy that was being hatched between Elizabeth and Margaret Beaufort, the mother of Henry Tudor. Now, oh God, where to begin with Margaret Beaufort? She really deserves her own series of supplementals, but instead I... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll summarize her life up to this point in about a minute or so. But keep her in mind, because she is going to feature prominently in a later episode. Margaret was the wealthy heiress who, at the age of 12, had married Edmund Tudor, the Earl of Richmond, and eldest son of Catherine of France and Owen Tudor. She was the daughter of the Duke of Somerset, who had been such a key figure in the early years of the Wars of the Roses, and was therefore the great-great-granddaughter of Edward III, albeit down a legitimised bastard line. Her marriage to Edmund produced one child, a son called Henry. Throughout the Wars of the Roses, Margaret had been a tireless advocate for her son, and right now she saw her opportunity. At that point, Henry was in exile in France, but Margaret was protected thanks to her marriage to a prominent Yorkist. The problem was that Henry's claim was a little bit on the shaky side, since it was down the bastard line, and went by quite a few generations. But he was the only hope for the Lancastrian claim, and so nobles were rallying towards him, just not that many. To secure their alliance, Elizabeth and Margaret thrashed out a marriage agreement, one every bit as audacious as the marriage of Warwick's daughter Anne to Margaret of Anjou's son Edward had been. They agreed that Henry Tudor would marry Elizabeth of York, the eldest daughter of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. Together, they would unite the houses of York and Lancaster and reclaim the throne from the evil usurper Richard. Or that was the plan, anyway. Unfortunately, Richard was many things, but dumb was not one of them. His spies easily detected the conspiracy, and Henry and Buckingham were easily defeated. Henry managed to escape back to Brittany, but Buckingham was captured and executed as a traitor. The relationship between Elizabeth and Margaret Beaufort, despite their alliance during Buckingham's rebellion, was cool to say the least, and after its failure it became even more frigid. Both women had lost countless relatives to the other side during the Wars of the Roses, and both wanted the very best for their own children. For now, their interests aligned, but equally neither were under the illusion that their alliance was anything other than one of convenience. It seems, though, that the defeat of Buckingham's rebellion was the last straw for Elizabeth. She was a survivor. She did whatever needed to be done to ensure that she and her children would come out on top, or at least alive. Remember that she had once been a Lancastrian, her husband killed by the Yorkists, but she had married the man who had made her a widow in order to protect herself and her children. Now she was forced to do a deal with the devil for a second time. She had no hope of rescue, no hope that Richard would be overthrown, and given that Richard was 15 years her junior, it was unlikely that she would see another king in her lifetime. It was time to deal while she could still command terms. Titulus Regius had deprived her of her rank, her lands and her income. She needed an arrangement that ensured the safety of the children that she still had left, and that she and they would be provided for. In particular, she was keen to ensure that her daughters, for her daughters were all she had now, be given good marriages. Richard held most of the cards, but he also wanted a conclusion to this impasse. With the Queen free after making a deal with him, she could no longer be quite such a martyr of the cause of the king he had usurped, and the Lancastrian claim to the throne. The mistrust on both sides must have been enormous, but eventually, with his hands on holy relics and in the presence of the Lord's spiritual and temporal, the mayor and alderman of London, Richard made the following declaration. Quote, I promise and swear that if the daughters of Elizabeth Grey, late calling herself Queen of England, will come to me out of the sanctuary of Westminster, 
that I shall see that they shall be in surety of their lives, and also not suffer any manner of hurt by any manner person or persons to them, to be done by any way of ravishment or defouling contrary to their wills, nor any of them imprisoned in the Tower of London or in any other prisons, but that I shall have all things requisite and necessary for their exhibition and finding as my kinswomen, and that I shall marry such of them as now be marriageable to gentlemen born, and give each of them marriage lands the yearly value of 200 marks, and over this one year's pay for the exhibition and finding of Elizabeth Grey the sum of 700 marks, and moreover I promise them that if any surmise or evil report be made to me of them by any person, then I shall not give thereunto faith nor credence. A few things there. First of all, it is notable just how sexual and gendered the promises are that are made to them. He promises them that they will not be sexually abused by men loyal to him, and does so far more explicitly than he does any other horror that might await them. This shows just how gendered this whole thing was. Since there were no sons left, this was a mother securing safety for her daughters. Secondly, it explicitly mentions the Tower of London as a place where they will not be thrown into, and then mentions other prisons. There is a tacit admission and threat here. He is promising that they will not suffer the same fate as Elizabeth's sons, perhaps admitting that he had done away with them at the Tower, but also threatening them that if she was to break the terms of the promise, then that could be the fate of her and her daughters. Then again, that is just complete conjecture. The whereabouts of Elizabeth in the next few months is not entirely clear. Given that she was no longer a queen in the eyes of the law, she would of course have no role in government, and so it seems that she kept her head down. There was a household established for some of her children at Sheriff Hutton in North Yorkshire, and it is possible that she would have stayed with loyal supporters, or simply retired to what estate she would have had restored to her. She did not, though, completely disappear from court life, as she was invited to celebrate Christmas with Richard III in 1484. This was clearly an attempt to continue the appearance of a rapprochement between the king and former queen, and though I doubt many were convinced, the optics were certainly good. Elizabeth was a woman whose family had been decimated by Yorkists and Lancastrians alike, and right now she just wanted to be on the winning side so as to protect what children she had left. What a reaction then to the invasion of Henry Tudor in the summer of 1485 is anyone's guess. Henry's entourage included a great many members of her family. Her son Thomas Grey was left behind as a hostage at the French court, security for a loan taken out by Henry, and in the invading army were her brothers Edward and Richard. And of course, Henry was kind of sort of betrothed to Elizabeth's daughter, but the situation was still fluid. Richard III had already defeated Buckingham's revolt, and the odds were stacked against the Lancastrians. Therefore, Elizabeth sat tight, declared for no one. Henry Tudor's victory at the Battle of Bosworth came as a bit of a shock, to say the least, and was achieved mainly through treachery and double dealings by Henry and his mother Margaret. Elizabeth, who had already seen what an incoming monarch could do to those who weren't his natural supporters, must have been nervous, but the early signs were good. One of the new king's first acts was to reverse the Titulus Regius Act that disinherited and slandered Elizabeth Woodville. The act starts by stating that Henry V was no traitor and should never have been overthrown, and that all Lancastrians who had been the subjects of acts of attainder during the reigns of the Yorkist kings should have everything restored. Then comes the bit about Elizabeth. Quote, the king, our sovereign lord, for certain considerations him moving, by the advice and assent of the lords spiritual and temporal, and commons in this present parliament assembled, and by authority of the same, enacteth, ordaineth, and establisheth, 
that Elizabeth, late wife to Edward IV, late King of England, have and enjoy from henceforth all such estate, dignity, preeminence and name as she should or might have had or done if no act of Parliament had been made against her in the time of Richard III, not of right King of England. And that the same Elizabeth be able to plead and be impleaded in all manner of actions and have grant, take and receive all manner of hereditaments, possessions, goods, chattels and other things and also have and maintain all such actions of debt and account as she should or might had or done, and the same to be of such force and effect as if no act of parliament had been made against her, in the type of the reign of the said late pretended King Richard, excepted for such debts and accounts as have been duly paid and made after the beginning of the said usurped reign of the said late pretended King Richard, whereof all persons which have made any such payments of accounts be thereof against the said Elizabeth discharged. Who says that legal legislative language is boring? Basically, what all that says is that Elizabeth should be raised to the position of Dowager Queen, just as she should have been. Any doubts about the legitimacy of her marriage are swept away, and she should be given back all her lands and money. Now, Henry was not doing this out of some love for Elizabeth. He was doing it to make sure that his future bride, Elizabeth's namesake daughter, was the daughter of a king of queen, not of a bigamist bastard. The long-awaited marriage of Henry Tudor and Elizabeth of York took place on the 18th of January 1486. This made Elizabeth Woodville a Queen Mother for the second time, but she would play very little role in that position. See, Henry VII had a living mother of his own, Margaret Beaufort, and Margaret did not play nice. There was barely enough room for one alpha female at an English medieval court, and all that space was taken up by Margaret, so Elizabeth was edged out. She was present at the christening of her daughter's first child, Arthur, at Winchester Cathedral in 1486, but Elizabeth quickly fell from royal favour after the rebellion of Lambert Sibnall. In 1487, the only invasion of England by an Irish army in history took place where a group of exiled Yorkist lords trained an obscure joiner boy from Oxford to pretend to be Richard III's nephew, Edward Earl of Warwick. This was frankly a bizarre scheme that I won't go into too much detail, especially as their army was crushed at Newark, but it is clear that Henry VII suspected Elizabeth of being involved, as in February 1487 she suddenly had her lands re-seized and found herself sent to early retirement at Bermondsey Abbey. What was her involvement supposed to be? Historians have speculated that the Simnel conspiracy needed a strong base in London, a force behind the throne that could guide him when he came to the throne. It is suspected the Seminole would probably marry the Queen Elizabeth of York, ending the union of the houses of Lancaster and York, and instead once again reuniting the Nevilles and the Yorkists in one great big happy white rose family. Therefore, Elizabeth's role was envisaged as being in the consolidation of rule stage, but it is possible that she was also involved in persuading Irish lords to support Seminole in this very early stage of the revolt. Henry's stated excuse for depriving Elizabeth was that she had deliberately stymied his cause by taking Richard III's deal way back in 1484 and emerged from her dubious sanctuary of Westminster Abbey. Now clearly this is all tosh, as Henry had known all of this when he had restored Elizabeth to her position in the first place, but there are a couple of reasons why he used this excuse and not just outright blame her for supporting the, the uprising. One is that he didn't like the optics of accusing his wife's mother of being a traitor, the last thing he needed was to place in doubt the succession of his son, and therefore anything that might do that had to be avoided. There had not been an uncontested accession to the throne of England now for over 50 years, 
Henry was determined that his son would break that cycle. Some, though, have suggested an alternate theory, which suggests that Elizabeth's retirement may well in fact have been voluntary. Bermondsey had history as a place where queens went to live out their last years. Catherine of France had gone there of her own free will in the last months of her life. But there is no suggestion that Elizabeth was unwell. Certainly little suggests that she was willing to give up her lands and position voluntarily. She had spent the three long years of Richard III's reign seeking to work her way back into wealth and position. It seems unlikely that she would give it all up just a few years later. Supporting the rebellion of Simnel was the end of Elizabeth Woodville as a political animal. She was not kept in isolation. We know of many visits made to her by her children and grandchildren. She was given a stipend to live on and did occasionally get out of the abbey, but mostly her final five years of life would have been spent in probably a fair amount of boredom. Her life until 1487 had been a complete roller coaster, but now it was over. Her health seems to have been pretty robust, but when she entered her mid-50s it began to fail, and so in April 1492 she wrote her will. Quote, I, Elizabeth, by the grace of God, Queen of England, late wife to the most victorious prince of blessed memory, Edward IV, being of holy mind, seeing the world so transitory and no creature certain when they shall depart from hence, having almighty God fresh in mind, in whom is all mercy and grace, bequeath my soul into his hands, beseeching him of the same mercy to accept it graciously, and our blessed Lady Queen of Comfort, and all the holy company of heaven to be good means for me. I bequeath my body to be buried with the body of my lord at Windsor, according to the will of my said lord and mine, without pomp or costly expenses done thereabout. Where I have no worldly goods to do the queen's grace, my my dearest daughter, neither to reward any of my children according to my heart and mind, I beseech almighty God to bless her grace with all her noble issue, and with as good heart and mind as is to me possible, I give her grace my blessing and all my aforesaid children. I will that such small stuff and goods that I have to be disposed truly in the settlement of my debts and for the health of my soul as far as they will extend. If any of my blood will of my said stuff or goods to me pertaining, I will that they shall have preferment before any other. She then goes on to name her executors, who are three men whose names they won't trouble you with. She ends by saying, quote, I beseech my said dearest daughter the Queen's grace and my son Thomas Marquis of Dorset, to put their good wills and help for the performance of this my testament. This is a very interesting will. First of all, she defiantly calls herself Queen of England right at the top, defending her title and position to the last. She connects herself very strongly with her husband, dangerous in times when being a Yorkist was, one, was a one-way ticket to having everything you own seized. She puts her trust and faith really in two people. Her son by her first marriage, Thomas Gray, and most particularly her daughter Elizabeth of York. Interestingly, she does not at all mention the king, a sign of the clear dislike shared between the two, but very clearly expects her daughter to intervene on her behalf to ensure that her will be carried out. Unsurprisingly for a will, it is a very pious document. It beseeches God a lot, and sets aside money not just to repay her debts, but to pay for prayers to be made for her soul, which is believed to be a shortcut out of purgatory and into heaven but there is also the meagerness of her bequeathments. Elizabeth had once been queen and the owner of vast estates. Now she was hardly destitute, but her finances were a shadow of what they once had been. It was a very tame end to what had been an extraordinary life. As a comparison, her funeral cost around £1,000, Margaret Beaufort's would cost nearly £15,000, 
a symbol of how far things have changed. So, how to sum up Elizabeth Woodville? The chronicles of the time are fairly universally negative about her. They blame Elizabeth for enticing the king into marrying a nobody commoner. They blame her for filling the king's noble offices with Woodvilles, who all went on to marry all the best prospects. And they blame her for being so foolish as to trust Richard with the safety of her son, the Duke of York. They paint her as haughty, arrogant, and as an upstart. Later portraits didn't do much to dispel this notion, and it is not until recently, thanks to some scholarly work, that her reputation has been rehabilitated, and works of popular history and fiction have served to present Elizabeth Woodville now with far more colour. The theme that I have used in this miniseries constantly is of Elizabeth the Survivor. By the time that she died in the 1490s, Elizabeth had managed to outlast almost everyone else in this drama. Warwick, Clarence, Richard III, Somerset, Exeter, Margaret of Anjou, Buckingham, not to mention both her husbands and a number of her children. She may not have come out on top in the end, but for someone at the top for such a long time, she managed to survive the regime change remarkably well, far better than almost everyone else. This was because of her ability to adapt, to manoeuvre her position effectively, and to make deals with her enemies if it meant the survival of herself and her children. This is how the daughter of a captured Lancastrian father and widow of a Lancastrian noble killed in battle against the Yorkist general Warwick ended up being the wife of the Yorkist king. It is how she did a deal with a man who it is very likely killed her two sons, including the proclaimed king, in order to ensure a safe and prosperous future for her daughters. And it is how she agreed to marry off her eldest daughter to the son of a Lancastrian noblewoman in order to overthrow the dynasty that she had supported and married into for 20 years. This could be viewed as the actions of a totally amoral, selfish woman looking out only for her own interests, or as a ruthless pragmatist willing to do anything to protect her family, and it is the latter which, for me, is the more apt. Much has been made of the promotion of her family, and there is no doubt that this was destabilising, but there are several mitigating factors. Firstly, Edward knew his own mind, and this was clearly a policy that he supported. To push it completely as the act of an arrogant, dominating queen is to play into the misogynistic propaganda of the age. The queen's relatives, many of whom were of very low position, needed to be promoted. This was not unusual. What was different about it was the sheer number of Woodvilles and the class snobbishness about their father who had been born a commoner. It is fair to say that the situation could have been handled more subtly and with more tact, but it is hard to blame Elizabeth for creating a support system at court to defend and promote her. Her actions after the death of her husband had been analysed deeply for centuries, but the problem is that there is just so much propaganda around and so little concrete information that it is hard to see the wood for the trees. She was up against an equally ruthless pragmatist in Richard of Gloucester, but he had the advantage of an army to back up his claims and deeds. In the end, she stood very little chance, yet she still managed to survive the Ricardian age, which took quite some clever politicking, especially after she was caught supporting a rebellion against him. I think the best summary that I have read about Elizabeth's life comes from David Baldwin in his biography of Elizabeth. He says, The real problem is perhaps that Elizabeth's critics have failed to imagine themselves in her position and to pause for a moment to consider how they might have responded to it. Do they really think that she could have left her brothers and sisters in relative penury while she sat on the throne? We do not know if she actually revelled in her newfound wealth and fortune, but she would have been no less criticised if she had displayed an unacceptable degree of humility. She may have breathed a sigh of relief at Clarence's demise at the hands of her husband, but her undoing in 1483 was not that she sought to preempt Gloucester, 
but rather that she placed too much confidence in him. Presenting Elizabeth as a villain, then, is to misunderstand the complexities of the situation and of her actions. To promote her as a heroine is to forget that she was an especially ruthless and vengeful woman. To me, Elizabeth's greatest success, as I have said already, is her skill at surviving, because not only did she manage to live in the reigns of four, maybe five kings, depends who's counting, but she managed to marry her daughter to a king who had finally managed to pacify England, turn the grandmother of the kings and queens of England, Scotland and France, and become rehabilitated as one of the most popular queens of medieval England. Not bad for the daughter of a commoner. Let's see if Kate Middleton, her spiritual successor as a commoner queen's reign, should it happen, is as eventful. God, I hope not. Next time, we delve again, this time for the final time, into the fire of the Wars of the Roses, as I describe the life of Anne Neville, the oft-forgotten daughter of Warwick and wife of Richard III. Born into a life of great privilege, she would suffer a rollercoaster life just like everyone else in this story, but hers would have the most tragic events. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 